Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. In our first episode of the Hometown Stories series, Bridging the Great Health Divide, we took an in-depth look at how the opioid epidemic has fared within the COVID-19 pandemic. Overdose rates rose to record highs over the last year, not only in Virginia, but nationwide. What are communities doing to fight back against the power of the poppy and the increasingly prevalent and deadly intrusion of fentanyl? We invited Christine Baldwin, a peer recovery specialist from the Roanoke Valley's Hope Initiative, and Dr. Robert Trussman, Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine with the Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine, for a conversation. In our roundtable discussion, we talk about resources available for people looking for help for their substance use disorder and offer guidance for friends and family dealing with the fatigue of someone else's struggle with addiction. This conversation originally aired on the WDBJ7 Plus Digital News Desk, Monday, March 22nd, 2021. We are continuing the conversation about the opioid crisis here in Southwest Virginia, but I have a couple other voices that I'd like to bring in. So right now I'd like to introduce two people. We have Dr. Robert Tressman, who is the Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at Carilion Clinic, and we have Christine Baldwin, who is a Peer Recovery Services Coordinator with the Roanoke Valley Hope Initiative and also is part of the Roanoke Valley Collective Response. Hello, uh, good evening to both of you. Thank you for joining me. The pleasure, thank you. I, uh, you know, I think the the one thing that I want to jump off of here is the fact, you know, kind of what Nancy Bell, we heard her say in that story, which is, uh, don't give up hope, there is, uh, there is more to come. And so I want to talk about that and talk about some of what you both, um, you know, have to share with people. But first, I want to reflect on the past year. Um, so Christine, I want to start with you, uh, you know, in your role with the Hope Initiative. What have you seen over the last year? And of what you just saw in this story, was there any particular data set or, um, you know, any words from anybody that really stood out to you? Absolutely. This last year of 2020 was like no other, as we have can all attest to. Um, within the HOPE initiative, we definitely saw an increase in our participants, seeing over 397 participants in the year of 2020. And a large number of those being uh, return participants who were struggling with a relapse due to decreased services and supports due to COVID restrictions. Um, so we've, you know, things are definitely on the climb as all of those data points um, highlighted. And one thing that really uh, stuck out to me was in our participants, which we just reached our, we are over 1,000 participants as of this month in March. And out of those 
74% are reporting polysubstance use. So although opioids are in the spotlight, what we really have here is an addiction epidemic that um, you, know, you have to address the disease of addiction and the underlying causes, um, regardless of the preferred substance of choice. And that is something I'll also note we did see in that DEA national drug threat uh, assessment, which was the meth, um, methamphetamines, uh, cocaine as well, uh, reported an increase in those as well. Um, Dr. Trustman, I want to go to you next. Was there anything in particular that you heard um, that stuck out, to, stuck out to you and has maybe resonated with what you have seen over the last year? It has been, to repeat what everyone has said, a really horrible year. There have been so many illnesses that have been worsened because of reduced access to care. Uh, we have transformed overnight at Carillion, uh, certainly in psychiatry, in our outpatient program, uh, to telehealth. And that has given a lifeline for many people, but it has transformed the way we deliver care most people really prefer, if everything else is equal, to being in the same room with the people who are caring for them, for the others in the treatment programs with them. So it's been a very different environment. Uh, we have been providing care to over 600 people with opioid addiction. Uh, despite the pandemic, we've increased that, uh, that, those linkages. But the polysubstance use has complicated life profoundly. Historically, it was cocaine. Now, it's uh, in addition to that, it is methamphetamine. And keep in mind where we are. This region historically was moonshine, alcoholism, tobacco use. We have many kinds of addiction that we grapple with. And it, we, it really does, as Christine suggested, that we need to really focus on the infrastructure so that we can really address the challenges the population faces. And, and that's going to be the ongoing issue. I also want to touch on something that we heard Beth Macy note, that we heard Lisa Vine note, and that was isolation. Um, you know, Dr. Tressman, I know you and I have spoken a couple of times about the effects of this pandemic on mental health. Um, and when it comes to isolation and like Lisa was saying, not being able to see your friends or like Sheriff Hall said, not being able to go to sporting events, which are really big in Allegheny County. Um, how much do you think that is also contributing um, and, and do you have hope maybe that as we start to be able to maybe do some more of those things, it could have a positive effect? Oh, it certainly will. And we are social animals. We do better when we have emotional support and connection with other people. We know that, we rely on it. And so the pandemic has undercut so much of what we otherwise would need to rely on. Couple that with the loss of employment, job insecurity, food insecurity, all of those things that are linked to the pandemic have undercut the energy that the Roanoke Collective Response, the HOPE Initiative had really begun to build. And so we're gonna to have to rebuild a lot of those efforts. One of the good things in this context is addressing what Beth Macy had commented on about stigma. More and more, we're openly talking about addiction, 
we're openly addressing the challenges. As we do that, it will make it easier to talk about this as what it really is. It's an illness. And it's an illness that does not reduce the value of a human's life or their dignity. And all it takes is for someone to work with or love someone who is addicted and watch them recover. And then you really begin to see what it means to really treat someone with dignity and respect and provide them the tools they need to recover. One of the things that Beth, Beth Macy also touched on, she said that word stigma, she said that was one of the biggest things that she still felt um, was really getting in the way of people getting the care that they need. Christine, how did you react to that? Is that something that you still feel um, is affecting the people that, that you interact with who are who are working on their recovery? Absolutely. I think uh, stigma has always been a barrier to people finding the strength and the courage to reach out for help. Um, And then even once they do, it's fighting through all of the applications and, you know, the questionnaires and really hashing up all of those experiences that were not proud of um, in in finding the confidence to to own up to those things um, is definitely a huge barrier. We saw due to COVID restrictions, we saw, we have seen about a 10% decrease in our successful admissions into treatment or um, attendance of first treatment appointment due to decreased bed capacity, Um, with social distancing, um, heightened admission criteria, having to be COVID tested or quarantined prior to attending treatment. So even once people overcome that stigma and find that strength and that courage to reach out and ask for help, there's still so many barriers that navigate before they really are connected with that treatment that they're asking for. And before we kind of start talking uh, next about some of the resources that are available uh, for people, I it, it sounds like, you know, stigma obviously is one of the big hurdles to overcome. But what else do you think is, you know, f- for folks who maybe haven't seen the opioid crisis up close, either themselves personally or don't have a friend or family member who have experienced this, what's the one thing that you would like them to take away from this? What is, you know, maybe a big myth that you think needs to be, you know, how the record set straight. If they could take away one thing, what would that be? I think it would be, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate and it doesn't matter where you live, what kind of job you have, how much money you make, what kind of car you drive. I think that is all kind of a piece of the stigma that we think there's one particular stereotype of, um, individuals in our community that are struggling with substance use. And that's just not the case. Um, it's, it's anyone from someone at your church, someone at your job, at your doctor's office. And you can almost guarantee that you're never more than three degrees separated from someone who's struggling from substance use at that time. Um, and as we've mentioned, you know, that this is, um, 
that this is an addiction epidemic that we're dealing with. And so a lot of people, because the spotlight is put on opioids, feel like if that's not the substance they're struggling with, that there isn't resources and treatment available to them. And then they don't reach out because they feel like they don't meet the criteria of the treatment that's available to them. That's a good point. And it, I, I think for a lot of people, that would probably really resonate um, hearing that from he, coming straight from you. I want to talk in a second about the Roanoke Valley collective response. But before we do, Dr. Trustman, I want to go to you next. If there is anybody who is um, who is watching who maybe has been to that point of, you know, I think I want to start my recovery process, but I'm so disheartened or I maybe don't have the energy or I don't want to do all this paperwork or I don't know what the best option for me. Uh, Dr. Trustman, what would you want to, what would you want those folks to hear? That there are so many different opportunities. We are learning so much and it really depends on where people are in their recovery process. But one of the things that's so important for people to understand and recognize, it was mentioned also by Beth Macy, uh, that medication for opioid use disorder is a critical component for the large majority of people. In our region, there is still a stigma associated with the use of medication in the treatment of opioid use disorder or addiction. And that's one thing that we can, if we overcome, there are so many opportunities for treatment. So I think it's really important for people to recognize that, that abstinence only can work for a small percentage of people, but the vast majority of people who are addicted can be helped and helped pretty quickly to get started with medication. Medication can help to get their craving under control and help to reduce or prevent all the withdrawal symptoms that can be so incredibly painful and disruptive to their lives and drive them to getting the next hit. So, you know, that's one of the things that has allowed us to be so successful in what was mentioned earlier, our bridge program, linking people in our emergency room directly to treatment, where we have peer recovery specialists in the emergency room, working with people who have overdosed, linking them directly to treatment. Our emergency room physicians are now comfortable providing medication for opioid use disorder in the emergency room, giving them a prescription so that they're able to bridge to the clinics. We have a success rate of about 80% getting people who have overdosed and are brought to the emergency room, getting them directly into treatment. That's really remarkable. And it's something that we can work to build on. The other thing is, as Christine mentioned, Every person is different. Every trajectory is different. You know, people who are pregnant and are addicted to opioids, we can work in a specialty program to support them with other women who are pregnant. We can work to keep the family together so that the babies when born can be born healthy and no longer addicted. There are so many different opportunities we have to really support people. Someone who is more severely ill and presents to the hospital in sepsis, where they've got a blood infection due to, being, to using dirty injections 
of opioids and other drugs. We're working with them while they're hospitalized to get them started in treatment while they're in the hospital for their infections. So the world around us is changing so that we can adapt care to the people who need it in ways that are comfortable for them, relying on peer recovery specialists who have walked this road and can share their stories of hope with people and with clinicians who are providing care without judgment, without stigmatizing the patients who need our care. Mentioning that bridge program, when I was speaking with the folks in the West Piedmont area, that's Martinsville, Henry County, they said they wanted to bring something similar um, from the, the Piedmont Community Services to SOVA Health in Martinsville, that big hospital there. And as you heard in our story, since they launched on March 1st this month, they met with 15 patients in the emergency department and seven have followed up with Piedmont Community Services. I think the idea there is to continue expanding, expanding so they have a person there to 24 seven. Um, but does that give you hope that the, you know, the, the word we keep coming back to ironically is bridge. Does it give you hope that this bridge program can and is serving as a model to other areas, not just here in Virginia, but maybe even outside of Virginia? Yes, it is. And a lot of our advocates are working really incredibly hard. Uh, Dr. John Burton, head of the emergency department, spends a lot of his time in the community sharing his story about the success of this program, along with nationally with other emergency rooms around the country. Dr. David Hartman and Dr. Sherry Hartman, who have been champions for years of our bridge program and our office-based opioid treatment programs have been working to share this with others around the Commonwealth and are sitting on the governor's council to really help to shape the next generation of care delivery. So Roanoke has been doing its share in really helping to guide the rest of the Commonwealth and many regions around the country uh, in really overcoming stigma and sharing the models that we've been really working to develop. I want to go to Christine next. Uh, Christine, you have worked with the Roanoke Valley Hope Initiative as a peer recovery services coordinator, but you also work uh, with the Roanoke Valley Collective Response, which, as I understand, was kind of born out of dope sick. And you guys have laid out a roadmap. Can you walk us through some of the highlights of that roadmap and what guidance it's giving you all and and the extended community? Because there are so many people who are a part of this. Um, But what is it? What kind of guide is it giving you guys? What points of direction are you hoping to head with this with this blueprint essentially absolutely the Roanoke Valley collective response is just over two years old with um, over 300 individual members across over 200 organizations in the Roanoke Valley and as you mentioned we've been coming together at monthly meetings to create this blueprint as an action plan to address some of the gaps and barriers to treatment and sustained recovery in the Roanoke Valley. There are five different working groups that span from prevention, um, overdose response and connection to care, treatment, recovery, and child and family support services. 
Um, and that really speaks to all the ways that addiction impacts an individual, their family, their employers, and their community as a whole. And through those working groups, we, everyone has worked so hard to identify the top priorities that would make the biggest impact in our community to either establish new services or collaborations amongst existing organizations within the community. Um, there are efforts going on already. Uh, the blueprint was, was just released um, at the end of 2020. And uh, already there are efforts and collaborations and projects that have sprung into action to address some of these gaps that were identified. And there are partnerships with peers and EMS um, partnerships with organizations, with the local jails, really trying to everyone come to the table together, get out of our separate silos. We have everyone from um, the medical um, the medical sector, law enforcement, government officials, uh, the business league, uh, faith community, everyone coming to the table and saying, how can we help each other to serve our community and, and address any gaps in services for treatment. I know uh, it may be overwhelming for for some folks, um, you know, first of all, when it comes to the data, trying to capture data, I know is challenging. And, you know, the folks at VDH have even told me the data lags. So it's hard to get an exact crystal clear picture of what things look like right now. And I know that um, because there are so many options out there, um, some folks may feel slightly overwhelmed about, OK, where do I start? So where would you suggest if somebody's watching right now and they're like, all right, I'm going to do it or they'd like to present? Uh, some information to a family or a friend, um, where would you suggest they begin? There, there's several ways, um, depending on where someone is in their journey. Uh, through the collective response, uh, the directory of resources that originally um, began being developed through the HOPE initiative is now available on the resources page of the Roanoke Valley Collective Response. So folks could go on there and see some of the local and even not so local resources that are available to folks seeking treatment and recovery resources. And for help in navigating that, because it is a quite large document that can be difficult to really absorb all of the information and know how to approach um, accessing that, that resource, um, the HOPE Initiative, that's what we're here for. We meet with inter individuals who are seeking treatment and or recovery resources. And we go through an interview process that helps kind of pull the crop and not be so overwhelmed with all the resources that are out there and say, okay, based on your information, these are the resources that you would be eligible for. And then our peer recovery specialists um, assist in the application process, admissions, appointment scheduling, transportation, whatever that process might look like to get that point, that person from the point of saying, I want help to actually accessing it and getting to where they want to be. 
Thank you for sharing that information. Um, and I also want to talk about the other folks who are involved, you know, the family and the friends who uh, sometimes suffer alongside that person, seeing them struggling with their uh, substance use disorder or opioid use disorder. Um, so, Christine, and then uh, Dr. Trussman, I'll have you follow up as well. Do you have any messages, any advice, any suggestions, any other resources that you would give parents, siblings, grandparents, friends, um, to, you know, if, they, if they're at that point where they feel sort of helpless or as Beth Macy describes it, that sort of fatigue from trying to help, uh, what would you recommend, Christine? The most important message is that you're not alone. Um, this disease does not only affect the individual struggling with the disease of addiction, but every family member, employer, coworker, um, you're absolutely not alone. And shedding that stigma to be able to reach out and say, my child is struggling or my spouse is struggling um, is so critical. There are support groups out there uh, for family members and loved ones who want to learn how to best support that individual without necessarily enabling. There are lots of resources out there and just the same as reaching out for help for treatment, it's okay to reach out and say, I need help learning how to deal with this and cope with it and support my, my loved one in the best way then. Um, there are things like Families Anonymous, um, celebrate recovery, lots of different types of resources that, um, again, depending on what your preferences are, what you're most comfortable with, um, that would be the right fit for the right individual. Dr. Tressman, any words of advice from you? Well, the first is follow what Christine just said, uh, because she was spot on. The other is that we should never give up on people who are addicted. It takes time. It is a long process. Addiction hijacks our brain and it takes time to overcome the addiction. So don't allow the frustration to make you as a loved one, as a family member, give up. Frequently, you will need support as a family member. Many people that I treat uh, or have suffered major depression, anxiety disorders, a whole host of disorders that in and of themselves require treatment as they struggle to support their family member with addiction. And that's okay. We can support you. We will support you. And so it's really important for people to recognize that just as Christine said, you're not in this alone. By reaching out, you'll realize that there are so many others who have similar frustrations and challenges. And just as with so many things, by building the sense of community, we will get through this together. That's one thing we I uh, heard Carlin Raffi, who was part of that Virginia Tech team uh, with the engaging Martinsville team, say the answers are in the community and the community has has the, the tools or has the has the minds that they need. Sometimes they just need additional resources, which is the case for many, many things. Um, I have um, put in the uh, comment section a link uh, to the story connected with the story that you saw at six o'clock tonight. And at the bottom of the article, you will find a ton of links to the Roanoke Valley Collective 
collective response, uh, the bridge program at Carillion, the HOPE initiative to help guide you if you're looking for some of those links that you have heard our guests mention. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of wrap up, you know, we've talked a lot. There's a lot to be hopeful about. There's a lot of resources out there. And I think most importantly, there are a lot of people who want to help. Um, so I just want to get any parting words from you guys, any final uh, thoughts, um, Dr. Trustman, just anything else that you would like to add, um, you know, kind of about what we've seen in 2020 and kind of what your, um, you know, the information that you'd like to leave people with now here in 2021. The first is that the pandemic is still something that is with us. Please protect yourselves, wear masks, keep social distance, get vaccinated. It's important to be alive, to help your family member get through the addiction. And we will be able to work together as a community to be able to really thrive and to overcome the stigma associated with so many of these illnesses. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Christine, anything else that you'd like to add here this evening? I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here and the awareness that this is spreading. I think that's one of the biggest things is the awareness and education that is necessary um, to keep this in the forefront of people's minds and let people know what resources are available. I'm, I'm really excited to see what funding opportunities do become available because um, that's what's really going to help to reinforce the collaborations that are going on amongst community partners, as well as establish those new resources that are needed um, to really get folks uh, the treatment that they're, they're looking for. Absolutely. And I'd like to thank our guests once again for joining us and all of the information, all the resources that they've been mentioning, you will find in that article, which is now in our comment section of this Facebook live stream. So uh, thank you very much to, you, to the both of you for being a part of this conversation this evening. My pleasure. Thank you very much. As always, if you have any questions for us here at the Digital News Desk, or if there are any other stories that you believe deserve attention, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a question or a story idea, wdbj7plus at wdbj7.com. We'd love to hear from you on any topic, and especially on this topic that we're talking about this evening, if we can help direct you to some of those resources that are available in the community, I'd love to be able to do so. Um, I personally read those emails, would be happy to hear from you, wdbj7plus at wdbj7.com. Once again, thank you for joining us as part of the Bridging the Great Health Divide conversation, focusing on health inequities that exist here in Appalachia and right here in Southwest Virginia and pointing you to solutions that are available to help bridge those gaps. Thanks very much for joining the conversation this evening. Take care. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by myself, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Riquelny. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.